Christ wants you to be confident and to be authentic. By this we know that we are authentic. How can we be authentic followers if we deny Jesus and not ourselves? By not seeking and obeying nor loving others? By serving ourselves and not Jesus? We are a ship without a rudder, claiming to be a house built upon the rock. Let us know God and make him known. Let us not walk in darkness, but in light, being sanctified and loving others selflessly. By this we know we are authentic followers of Jesus. Well, good morning. Okay. I'm just kidding. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Grab your Bibles and go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We'll be in verses 3 through 6 this morning. Um, Life is full of tests, right? Uh, We take tests to show how smart we are, or maybe to show how not as smart we are. Uh, We take tests to prove that we are healthy or unhealthy. Uh, And we take tests to prove that we are capable of driving or not capable of driving. When I was 16 years old, I took my driver's test. And in Salisaw, the uh, they do the driver's test on the back roads, probably to keep everyone else safe. You just kind of ride on some like neighborhood roads, but never really get out on the main, the main roads. Um, and the speed limit almost everywhere in Salisaw is 25 miles per hour. I mean, I wanted to make sure I passed my test. I didn't break any laws. And so I took my driver's test going 15 miles per hour. And so as I was driving, this car came up behind me and started really riding my bumper. And I'm getting a little frustrated, but I'm trying to you know, keep my attention on the road, my hands at 10 and two, doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. And this car begins to honk and he's honking and he's honking. And after I've made a couple of turns, I realized I wasn't in his way. He was following me. And so for the next 10 to 15 minutes, should have been about five, but again, I was going 15. Next 10 to 15 minutes, this car stays behind me on my bumper, honking the entire time. And I'm not really paying too much attention, but as I get to the end, I realize I think I know who this person is. And we get to the end of the test, I pull back up to the, uh, the, the place I did my test and my student pastor, our summer intern, my now wife, and I think someone else get out of the car and they followed me the entire time. Now, good news is I still passed. But in that moment, that test was supposed to be between me and the driving instructor. He was the judge and I was the person trying to be judged well. But in that moment, it wasn't just about me and him. My test turned into me trying to prove to my peers and my student pastor that I was also a good driver. Over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna look at three different tests that John's going to give us that show whether we are followers of Jesus or not. 
Test number one is this morning, and we're gonna talk about the importance of walking in obedience to Jesus. Next week is test number two, and it's love for your spiritual family. And then in a few weeks from now, we'll take a couple of weeks off because John kind of turns his attention to some other stuff, but we'll come back to these tests. And the final test is gonna be belief in Jesus as described in the Bible. And so this morning, we're gonna talk about this test, this test that we take really just in front of God because he is our judge, but the truth is we also take this test in front of other people. And so the main idea of our text this morning is a simple one that an authentic Christian obeys God by imitating Jesus. An authentic Christian obeys God by imitating Jesus. Now, I was joking with Scott earlier and we were saying, he was really saying that I could just come up here and say, hey, obey God, that's it. Because that's essentially what John's getting after. We need to walk in obedience. And I know you're hungry, I'm hungry, but because we need to spend at least some time in God's word, there's gonna be more to it. And so 1 John chapter two, let's look at verses three through six. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but, but, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And John uses the phrase, by this we know, twice in this section, once in verse three and once in verse six. And in verse three, he actually says, by this we know, we have come to know. The way you have assurance that in the past you have correct knowledge about God is by your present knowledge. And what John's gonna say is that present knowledge is true if it eventually leads to obedience. Now, knowledge is essential to what John writes in this letter. Uh, We've talked a few times already about the Gnostics and the Gnostics claim to have knowledge about God. And they believed that to have right knowledge would give you freedom from the penalty of living in this world. But the problem for them is they did not believe that knowledge affected your day-to-day life. That to them, as long as you had information, as long as you had a spiritual experience and everything was great, it did not matter how you ended up living your life. And knowledge is not just important to the Gnostics, uh, but knowledge is always a foundation to every worldview. Uh, Let's take three. Classical Greeks, for example, uh, they believe that... uh, your knowledge, your, your knowledge led to you being right with God, but that knowledge was simply about having human reason. That as long as you understood truths, then they believed that you had knowledge about God and you were drawn to the Lord. Uh, for example, Socrates believed that people were inherently good. And he believed that whenever you committed a crime or you did something that was immoral or unethical, it was because you lacked knowledge. So you needed to learn in order to do what was right. A Hellenistic Greek, uh, they were a little bit more religious that it wasn't just knowledge in general that gave you ideas about God, but it was knowledge about God specifically. But they would often merge maybe different views, uh, the Greek culture and their religious system with the Jewish religious system. And, but they believed anything that seemed to indicate this was true about a higher deity, they claimed to be 
good knowledge. And then finally, the Jews, they took the Old Testament as their knowledge. And for them, knowledge wasn't something that was just found, uh, or just, yeah, it wasn't found, it was given, that God revealed himself to the people, therefore they can know him. Now, as followers of Jesus, we can affirm to one degree or another some of these ideas, right? Uh, Author Holmes coined the phrase, all truth is God's truth. And as a people, I think we confirm that idea that anything that is true comes from God. And we understand that there's truth that exists outside of scripture. Now, it's not saving truth and we're not equalizing the Bible to uh, any other idea, but the truth is I'm not gonna open up my Bible and turn to some book and find how to change my oil. It's just not gonna be there right? Uh, I'm not going to open up my Bible and figure out the molecules that have to go together in order to make water. I am going to discover that God is uh, the creator of water. And I am going to discover that God is way better at fixing problems than I am at fixing problems, especially when it comes to my vehicle. But the truth is there are ideas that we can come to know outside of scripture. Uh, Paul affirms this in, in Titus chapter one, look what he says in, in verses 12 through 14. Paul writes, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. What does Paul do? He takes a Cretan quote, a secular idea, and he gives a biblical truth from it. He does the exact same thing in Acts chapter 17 when he preaches from the Areopagus at Mars Hill, where he talks about the Epicurean Stoic philosophers, right? So we can understand there's truth that we can know outside the Bible, but... We can't come to saving truth and we can't know how to walk rightly with God without the Bible. So that's why John is often again saying, I write to you, I write to you, I write to you. And so this knowledge that John talks about, let me give you two characteristics. Number one, it's intimate knowledge. It's not just knowing about, it's not just having information, but it's being intimately involved with it. Judas Iscariot is a great example of lacking that intimate knowledge. If Judas was sitting in a New Testament class or a Life of Christ class about the life of Jesus, he would probably ace the test. But he had no intimacy of who Jesus was because his heart was never changed. See, when we put our faith in the Lord, we make this covenant with God. And a covenant is this binding promise that exists. A covenant can be between two equal parties, such as a husband and a wife, or it can be between two unequal parties, such as God's people and God. And what often happens with the covenant is there is a symbol that goes with the covenant. And so with Judaism and with Christianity, as it morphs into Judaism or Judaism turns to Christianity, what we see is this covenant of circumcision, right? And while that covenant isn't applied to us today, the Jews had to circumcised their, their, their boys. And why is that? Is it just because God one day was like, hey, this will be funny. Let me give them this, this, this command. No, it's because what it symbolizes, right? It's the cutting off of skin is a symbol of if you are not right with the Lord, you will be cut off from him, right? It's the purpose of the covenant. And so the covenant was this mark of intimacy between two people. 
And so God has made a covenant with us to be intimate with us and to be near to us. And so to be intimate with God, then second is we need to be involved with God. There needs to be a daily relationship. And that's what John's focused on. See, the the Gnostics don't care. The Gnostics aren't concerned about their daily behavior. All they want is what's in the mind. And last week we spent some time talking about how Jesus is the propitiation and he is the advocate. And we looked a lot about how that applies to our salvation. Um, But Jesus today is still our propitiation and he is still our advocate. That John is focused on the day-to-day living. It's because knowledge affects how we live. On the screen, you see Jeremiah chapter nine, verse six. Jeremiah says, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Why is there oppression? Why are people being deceitful? It's because they lack knowledge of God. Hosea says the same thing. Hosea 4 on the screen, verses one through two. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. And there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Do you notice that when they don't have knowledge, when they aren't listening to the word of the Lord, the behavior that takes place, The sin that you have in your life is there either because you do lack knowledge or because you're neglecting the knowledge. But we aren't going to know the truths about God. We're not going to obey him unless we're spending time in God's word. And so we need scripture, but too often we chase after other things. So just to illustrate this, I've got, I've got some tools. So if you know me, you're, uh, you're scared right now. Um, but in the first century, whenever they were making coins, what they would do is they would, take, they would take two metals and they would, on the inside of the metals, they would put the inscription of Caesar Augustus and then they would dye, put dye on it. And so what would happen is they would take a softer metal and they would put the softer metal in between the two hard metals, and then they would begin to hammer down on it. And what would happen over time is that softer metal would begin to conform itself around the the harder metals. Um, And the die would begin to be um, embedded into that coin. And over time, as they hammered and hammered and hammered, uh, you would get Caesar Augustus, or in this instance, George Washington, um, you would get Caesar Augustus' face on that coin. And now, with it being the, the, the coin now molded in the shape of the inscription, and the ink now impressed, embedded into the inscription, what would ever happen to this coin, the emblem, the face of Caesar Augustus would stay. That takes time, that takes work, and spiritually speaking, it can be painful when God's chiseling out the brokenness and the sinfulness in our lives. See, what I want for my wife whenever we are, um, whenever I'm preaching is I'll often ask her, how was that sermon? Every Wednesday or every Sunday, how did I do? And and there are times, um, I like to think more times than not, where she says that that was really good. you did this well, you did that well. I thought you connected well. Man, that was one of the best sermons. They were engaged, great job. But then there's other times 
where our joke is if I don't feel good about a sermon, uh, I go to Taco Bell for lunch because terrible food goes with terrible preaching, I guess. Um, and uh, so there's times where she's like, uh, she won't say, you know, you want Taco Bell for lunch, uh, but she'll, <laughs> who knows, maybe we're going to Taco Bell, we'll find out. Um, but there's weeks where she's like, yeah, you could have connected your opening illustration better, or um, you made this point, and I don't really know where you got that point in the text. Can you kind of elaborate more? Not saying you're wrong, but maybe I missed something. And so we'll, might, we might walk through the sermon, and so I'll re-preach the sermon and kind of give some ideas, and she'll be like, okay, I see what you're doing, or yeah, that doesn't work, don't do that next time. Um, but it's good feedback. Now, what I want is every time her to be like, that was incredible. Yeah, like amazing, but that's not the case. And 40 years from now, I hope I'm still preaching and she's still gonna be saying, yeah, you could do some work on this or you could do some work on that or I don't know what you're doing. See, what we want is we come before the Lord and we wanna have this experience with him where we just feel so great about ourselves. And so we try to create an atmosphere where we're always encouraged, where we always wanna come back. And yes, we want you encouraged and we want you to come back. But sometimes what needs to happen is the tearing off of what is bad, the stripping down of what we shouldn't have. And so we can't be chasing after experiences because all we're doing is rather than being a coin that's molded between two hard metals, we're taking a crown and we're drawing the face of Caesar Augustus on it, on the coin. And what we could think is it looks good, it's gonna fit, but over time, we're gonna find out it's a fake. And as long as you're chasing after spiritual experiences and you're not really engaging yourself with the Lord, you're gonna realize that you're fake because a spiritual experience isn't gonna get us through the difficulties unless it's a genuine spiritual experience. David Jackman says, I'm not sure if this quote's on the screen, but J David Jackman says, in the ultimate proof of growing in love for God is not, the heightened, not in the heightened emotion of exciting worship, though that may well be an expression of reality, but in the daily detailed disciplined obedience by which our characters are being transformed to the image of God we love. The daily detailed disciplined obedience. And so what that means is when I come here, I want to experience God, but I want to experience him in a way that changes how I live Monday through Saturday. And it also means I'm not just after information. See, some of us, we do a really great job at reading scripture and taking notes and thinking about what we're learning. And we, we love to study, do like word studies. We love to learn these truths about God and truths about ourselves. But towards the end of your Bible study, hopefully, there comes a point where you begin to talk about conduct of how you ought to live. And so what we begin to do is we begin to write down like, I should stop lying, I should stop stealing, I should stop lusting, I should stop feeling whatever sin that you want. But I think what we're doing in those moments is we're trying to make ourselves think, we're talking about obedience, but the truth is we're so vague that we aren't thinking about how we're going to apply it. What we need to be doing is rather than saying, I should stop lying, we should be putting, I should stop looking up the answers on the internet and copying and pasting it into my paper and plagiarizing it, right? Rather than saying, I should stop stealing, what we should be doing is saying, I should stop lying on my time card about when I checked in and when I checked out. 
That rather than saying I should stop lusting, it's I should get rid of the devices that are in my home or put up the filter to help me stop engaging in this activity, right? It's being specific about what's going on. It's taking that knowledge now and thinking about how do I apply this appropriately in my situation? So the second truth we learned this morning is authentic Christians obey God. So one, authentic Christians know God. Second, they obey God. Uh, Verses four through five again, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. So John's quoting his opponents. By this we know, or or, uh, those who say, I know him. The Gnostics are going around saying they have knowledge about God, but John's trying to show them that they have no knowledge because they're not walking in obedience. So it leads us to have the conversation of where does works and obedience fit in our salvation? That we understand that yes, we're saved by grace, but there are commands that are difficult to understand and apply. And so what we can easily do is say, well, that's just irrelevant. It doesn't fit my context, but church understand every command in scripture is relevant to us today. And we are called to apply every command in scripture. Take the sacrificial system. Do we practice the sacrificial system? Absolutely we do. It's just that we don't offer animals, but God has offered a son on our behalf, right? Or another one on the screen, you see Romans 16, 16. Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I don't wanna do that, all right? Two reasons. One, it's awkward. And the second one is my lips get chapped and I'll just get tired of it, right? And so we don't wanna go around greeting people with a holy kiss. So am I ignoring that command? Am I saying, Paul, I don't want that, I don't like that? No, the the command here is really to have warm affection for those around you, to not have a cold shoulder. So what do we do in our context? It's not going around kissing each other, but in our culture, it's giving a hearty handshake or a warm hug. It's saying, I'm glad you're here and let me show you in a culturally appropriate way. And we're not letting culture define how we, how we um, what, what's relevant and what's not relevant. I'm not saying that if it doesn't fit with your culture, you ignore it. Like the past few weeks with our students, we've been spending time talking about the doctrine of family. And so we've talked about um, gender and sexuality. And then we've talked about dating and marriage. And in the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about singleness. And so we're just unpacking all of these ideas that fit within the family and, and who we are. And so obviously the relevance of it in the culture comes up because in our culture, we're more um, accepting of certain sexual or gender, gender identities, right? And so do we then as a church say, hey, we're just gonna fit with that because our context has changed? No. See, what we do is we understand every command is relevant and almost all the commands can easily translate from that culture to ours, but those that can't, what we do is we find the meaning to them then, we find the theological concept, what was being taught to them at that time, and then how does that meaning translate to how we apply it today? The point I'm trying to get at is every command is relevant. It's just not always easy to find, so we need to do the work. But let's not be people that say, I'm saved by grace, I don't need to obey. No, because you're saved by grace, you need to obey. And what happens? Well, love of God is perfected. 
So that phrase, love of God, can be translated in one of two ways. It seems at first natural to say God's love, that those who keep his word, those who obey his word, then God's love is perfected. But that's not what John's saying. One, because God's love isn't dependent upon our obedience. And two, because John's focused on their love for God. And so the proper way to look at that is their love is perfected. To be perfected is to be complete, to come to maturity. So how do you know you love God? How do you know it's perfected? Whenever you obey him. It's the proof, it's the evidence. But to our spouses, we aren't gonna say, I love you, then do the things they hate. They're gonna know we love them by doing the things that they delight in. And so what needs to happen for us is not just begrudgingly obeying the Lord, but by delighting in him. So how do we begin to delight in him? By turning our attention to him. Psalm one on the screen, verses one through two. Listen to what the psalmist says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. You see the connection between delight and meditate. A couple of, uh, I guess a week ago, my wife and I went to Kansas City. And unfortunately, we didn't go for the uh, incredible, incredible football game. Um, We went to the equally incredible Broadway musical, Wicked. Um, my wife loves Broadway shows. If she's not listening to Christmas music in July, uh, she's listening to Broadway music. Um, and so we get to the Broadway show because there's supposed to be in Oklahoma City, COVID stuff happens. And so we end up buying these tickets for her birthday in Kansas City. So we get there, we're watching this musical and she's loving it. Like she's singing along and she's having the best time of her life. And I have zero idea what they're saying. And I don't know if it's like, it's normal or it's just a problem with my brain. But if I don't know the lyrics to a song, when you're singing, you might as well be speaking some other language. And so she's singing and she's laughing and she'll elbow me and be like, oh, did you hear that? You think that's funny? And I'm like, I don't know what they said. And so, she, so we're breaking every rule. We're talking during the show and she's trying to explain to me. And I'm asking questions because I've seen The Wizard of Oz. But again, I don't remember movies or music at all. Every time I see a movie, I've seen it for the first time. And so I don't remember anything. And she's like reminding me of something. Like, okay, okay, I get that. I remember that. Why does my wife remember all of this? Because she listens to it. Because in a sense, she's meditating on it because she delights in it. I then in in return, tell her all this stuff I know about my favorite sports teams. Why? Because I delight in them. I know them, therefore I'm going to talk about them. Listen, church, if we want to delight in God, we need to know him. We need to meditate on him because you cannot love what you don't know. You can't delight in God if you don't know him. But too often here we are trying to have a relationship with someone, our God, whom we have no idea about. And so if we want to walk in obedience, then we need to come to God's word and begin to delight in him. Word here, it means redemptive story of scripture. So what we're doing is we're delighting in the story and the character of God as displayed through his word. And what happens? It's perfected. And what is it? Our love for God. It comes to completion. But I love how it's perfected 
It's not that as you obey God, you make your love perfected, but know that word perfected is in what we call the divine passive, meaning it's God himself who's perfecting it. So the, the, the proper way that we could translate verse, verse five is this, but whoever keeps his word in him, God has truly perfected their love for God. I think one of the maybe more ignored, most ignored teachings in, in scripture is this connection between the love of God and the Holy Spirit. Um, in, Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, you have uh, King Saul sin against the Lord and what happens? God removes his spirit away from Saul. And then we see on the screen, 2 Samuel chapter seven, verses 14 through 15. And it's the Lord promising to, to David that his offspring, the coming Messiah, is going to have the spirit. But, but what does he say? I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And time doesn't let us go into detail about this love of God and the Holy Spirit and how those two relate together. But here's the point. If you want to fall in love with the Lord and grow in action, obedience to him, guess what? You need the Holy Spirit in your life and you need to submit to him. So how does all this work in a passive sense? It's that when God tells me to do something, I submit to him. And it's through that submission, through that positioning myself before him, God begins to perfect that love. But as long as I'm resisting, I'm not gonna grow in love and obedience to the Lord. So the final truth we see, the primary way in which we can obey God is authentic Christians imitate Jesus. They imitate Jesus. Look at the end of verse five and then verse six. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And how did Jesus walk? In the Latin phrase, quorum Deo. Quorum Deo, it means the presence of God. Um, it's to be before the Lord. Now, when we think of being in the presence of someone, it's often for us, it's just being in the same room. But we know we could be in the same room with someone and not really be with them. Instead, we're on our phones or we're glued to the TV or we're doing something else. No, to be in the presence of someone is to be before them and to be with them. To be in the presence of God is to do all things in front of and before the Lord. Jesus lived his life with an understanding that he was always before the Father. And as Christians, we ought to adopt that same mindset. You see, with Jesus, listen, Jesus knew the law. But Jesus isn't living his life with every, all 614 commands in his mind and then going over them every single second and checking them off every single day. No, Jesus is living in this spontaneous overflow of joy and delight in the Father. Why? Because Jesus's heart is pure. And when we put our faith in Jesus, likewise, we receive a new heart. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Listen, we need to memorize scripture. We need to study scripture, but unless our hearts are not changed, we cannot imitate Jesus. And Jesus is not just the enabler of our faith. He's the model. He's the one we look to and he's the one that we are called to imitate. And sure, the way we apply it may be different. That the way you lay down your life is not to save people from their sins, but it is to sacrifice yourself to meet the needs of other people. And we have this hope that Jesus is never going to call us to do anything or to go anywhere that he has not first done or gone. And so he is the pioneer of our faith according to the book of Hebrews. He goes before him and we walk in step with him that where he goes, we also will go. Church, your salvation, it's not bookkeeping. We treat it like that, don't we? I got saved when I was eight years old. I got baptized into the baptistry. I got out and they gave me a Bible with my name on it and they told me to read it. And for the rest of my life, I knew I was saved. And so I just kind of lived my life leaning on that moment. And listen, that moment is a moment of our salvation. And that's the moment that we cherish and we delight. But that's the moment that begins our relationship with the Lord. It starts it. And so I don't want you to look at your salvation as a moment of the past, but something that's being out, worked out in the present of God working through you. And so it's why Jesus in John chapter eight, verse 12 can say that he is the light of the world and then follow that up in Matthew chapter five, verse 14 and say, you are the light of the world. The light penetrates the darkness. And we'll talk a lot about that next week. But until we get there, I just want you to think about the ministry of what Jesus is doing, bringing in the kingdom of God. And now he's called you to participate in that as well. And you do that through your obedience. I've heard a lot of people say, and whether it's theologically, we can break down the theological implications. I don't think it's a perfect statement to say, but it fits with what they're getting at. But you are sometimes the first Bible that someone else is going to read. And what they mean by that is before anyone ever looks into the Bible, they wanna look at your behavior to, to determine if, godly, if, if God even exists, if your salvation is genuine. You know what it's like on a road, long road trip and you're trying to just make it to the gas station, maybe to get a snack and maybe to use the restroom and maybe to get gas. But you know that feeling, especially before we had Apple Maps and Google Maps and you're just driving down the road waiting to find a gas station. And then you see from the distant, the Mecca, of gas stations. In Oklahoma, it's Quick Trip. In Texas, you see that Bucky's, right? And you know in that moment, you found a place where everyone in this car is gonna find something to snack on. You know in that moment, you don't have to be scared of that bathroom, right? Listen, church, if we take the Aaron Fulbright translation of Matthew chapter five, we're the Buckies of the world. We're the light of the world. People living in darkness, longing for hope, longing for rescue. And they see from a distant, something that looks different 
something that, something that promises a better life. And it's not us, it's not that we have it all together, but it's the true light that comes through us, Jesus Christ working through the church. And when people see us, they should be attracted to what's going on. We are the light of the world because Jesus Christ, the true light, is working through us. And so we must imitate Jesus. And so this imitation then begins with faith in Jesus. And so every week you hear us say this and we'll do this every single week because we know each week people come and they don't know the Lord. We know that you invite people. Last week I made a comment about our ping pong ball wall and I um, mentioned, mentioned this last few services and this isn't all in the last week, but the last three weeks you all have told us you've had 38 conversations with people about the Lord. And 12 of those 38 have come to our church since then. We celebrate that, right? But just because we come and now have this experience, it's not enough unless we now respond in faith and trust in Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus and you wanna know about why we obey and how Christ can change your life, we want to have a further, more in-depth conversation with you. And the rest of us, we're the light of the world. Let's live our life in a way that attracts people to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us and we love you. And we, we celebrate the hope and the promise of salvation. And God, we also understand the command, not the option, but the command to walk in obedience. And so Father, I pray this morning, first off, for those who don't know you, that God, they will respond in faith today. And God, they will start that life of obedience. God, they will be conformed to the image of your son. And God, I pray for all of us in here that each of us will leave this place not trying to do better, but seeking to lean into your spirit, to trust in him and to obey the commands that he gives us. Father, you're good to us and we celebrate the hope we have today in your name, amen.